to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Jesus closes the scroll of Isaiah and he says to the people before him, this reading has been fulfilled in your presence today. In other words, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he steps into this synagogue and he announces his mission, his mission as an act of spiritual liberation. He's come for the poor, not necessarily or exclusively economically poor, but spiritually poor. For the captives, not necessarily physically captive, but also spiritually captive. For, for the blind, the spiritually blind, for the spiritually oppressed. He has come to liberate them. something interesting happens see the people in the synagogue that morning they don't seem to fully get what Jesus is saying and so Jesus decides I'm gonna make this thing dummy proof and so he makes it dummy proof and after he makes it dummy proof, listen, church, after he makes it dummy proof, the church stands up. They grab him and they try and throw him off a cliff. Basically, they try and kill him. Now, what, 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 it's like, wait a minute. I've come to set, you know, the, the poor and the captives and the blind and the oppressed. Hey, that's, that's the kind of stuff that we say amen to. But when Jesus clarifies his point, it infuriates the church. They try and kill him. Now, what in the world did Jesus say that made the people so angry? Go to verse 25. Jesus begins to clarify his, his point. He begins to get down to the nitty-gritty, to the detail. Listen to what he says. Verse 25. Certainly, there were many needy widows in Israel in Elijah's time. When the heavens were closed for three and a half years and a severe famine devastated the land. All right, listen, let, let the imagination, right? Let the imagination grasp it. What is Jesus saying? In Elijah's time, there was this big famine and there were all of these needy widows all over Israel because there was no food and there was no rain and all of these Israelite needy widows were all over the place. But look at what he says next in verse 26. Yet Elijah wasn't sent to any of them. He was sent instead to a foreigner a widow of Zarephath in the land of Sidon. In other words, in the time of Elijah, there was this famine. All the people were hungry. All these Israelites, widow, were in need. And yet God sent his prophet to a pagan. And then he just keeps going. Verse 27. And many in Israel had leprosy in the time of the prophet Elisha. But the only one healed was Naaman, a Syrian. Whoa, 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 wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, Jesus. <laughs> there were all these lepers all over Israel during the time of Elisha. But the only one God healed was a pagan who wasn't even an Israelite. And it dawns on the people as they're sitting in the church that Jesus is basically standing there declaring to them, I am here on a mission of liberation, and I didn't come for the insiders. I came for the outsiders. And they try and throw him off a cliff. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, I still don't see why this would tick the people off so much. So you have to follow along with the rest of the story of Luke in order for it to come together. 
See, Jesus survives his assassination attempt. He disappears. And immediately, the story of Luke, from that point forward, the story of Luke begins to show him doing exactly what he said he came to do. It's not just a bunch of random stories. You know, hey, Luke, you know, I want to tell a story about Jesus. Let me pick my favorite little scenarios and just throw them together so everybody can see how, what a cool guy he was. No, Luke is purposefully sharing these stories in a particular order to convey a particular idea. So, number one, the very first thing after Jesus' assassination attempt, he heals a demon-possessed man. A guy who doesn't show up to the synagogue. A guy who doesn't get the attention of the religious elite. A guy who most people would have thought, he's done. There's no hope for him. Jesus heals a demon-possessed man. Then he goes to Peter's house, who Peter was a nobody, a fisherman, and he heals his mother-in-law. Now you have to understand this within the context of Luke. What in the world is Jesus doing? He's, he's claiming that he's here on this mission from heaven, on this mission from God, and he's spending all his time with nobodies. It goes, it goes on. He, he, he heals a leper. And then he goes and he heals. He's in Peter's house, and they lowered his paralyzed man down the roof. You, you, most of you know the story. They lowered his paralyzed man on the roof, and he, he heals him, and he forgives him. And then, you know, he has this big clash with the Pharisees about the forgiveness thing. And, 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 and it becomes really apparent that Jesus is focusing his attention not on the elites of Israel, but on the nobodies. And to top it all off, after he does these series of healings where he, he's healing these nobodies, he then calls a tax collector named Levi. Tax collectors in those days were considered the scum of Israel. I'll explain a little bit more about that in, the, in a minute. He goes to Levi and he tells him, follow me. So Levi, he throws a party because he... Nobody liked tax collectors. They were the scum of the earth in Israel's time. And, and Levi is excited. He's like, oh, somebody likes me. He invited me to follow him. Let me, let me throw a party. So Levi throws a party in his house. We're in chapter 5 now of the book of Luke. And during the party, the religious folks show up. And they ask an interesting question in verse 30. But the Pharisees and the teachers of religious law complained bitterly to Jesus' disciples. Why do you eat and drink with such scum? Other versions will say with tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus gives them an interesting answer. Healthy people don't need a doctor. This is verse 32 or 31. Healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. Verse 32. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners and need to repent. Now notice how Jesus answers the Pharisees' question. I have not come to call the healthy, but the sick. This is the same thing he preached at the synagogue. He was the Messiah, but he wasn't there for the know-it-alls, and he wasn't there for the religious elite, and he wasn't there for the holier-than-thou. He was there for the outcast. He was there for the misfit. He was there for the guy who doesn't fit in. It would be like, it would be kind of like this. It would be like Jesus walking by our church today, and we're like, oh, Jesus, come in and preach to us. Come in. And he turns around and says, no, I'm not here for you. I'm on my way to the rehab house. I'm on my way to the battered shelter. 
I'm on my way to the red light district. I'm not here for you. Now, if you taste just a slight bit of discomfort with that, perhaps you can begin to appreciate why the Pharisees were so angry with Jesus. And if you think this is uncomfortable, it actually gets a little bit worse. I love it. I love it. I love it when it gets worse. It's fun. See, you have to see this narrative unfolding through Jewish eyes. There's a tendency in modern-day Christianity to, to, to bypass the Jewishness of Scripture. But Scripture is a very Jewish book. You have to appreciate this through Jewish eyes. So let's try and walk through that for a moment so that you can see how much worse this whole Jesus thing in Luke gets. Jesus is gathering all the outcasts and the misfits and then he calls 12 disciples. If you follow the story, he gathers all these outcasts and misfits. Then he calls 12 disciples, and then he preaches the Sermon on the Mount in Luke chapter 6. Now, I want you to notice the pattern here. All right? Notice the pattern here. Because Jesus is liberating captives. He's got these 12 disciples that he calls, and then he preaches the Sermon on the Mount. Liberating captives, 12 disciples, Sermon on the Mount. Liberating captives, 12 disciples, Sermon on the Mount. And if you are a Pharisee, if you are a teacher of religious law, if you are an expert in Old Testament narrative, you realize that Jesus is reenacting the book of Exodus. Because in the book of Exodus, God liberates captives. They leave Egypt under 12 tribes, and then he takes them to a mountain where he proclaims his manifesto for their new society. And Jesus is doing the same exact thing. He's liberating captives. He calls 12 disciples to be the leaders, and then he ste steps foot on a mountain and proclaims his manifesto. He is reenacting the book of Exodus. In other words, as the religious class looks on at what Jesus is doing, they realize something. It hits them. It hits them and it freaks them out because here's what they see. They see that Jesus, as he reenacts the book of Exodus, Jesus is essentially, he is creating a new Israel. He is creating a new kingdom and they aren't invited. They aren't a part of it. Only sinners. Mm. I told you guys I was going to have fun today. Now the story continues in Luke. After the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus heals a centurion's servant, and what does he say to the centurion? He says, I haven't found faith like yours in all of Israel. Oh, come on, guys. We share these stories in church today as though they're cute. They're not cute, guys. They're offensive. They're deeply offensive to the religious class, to the religious establishment of his day. He, he, he heals this, you know, Roman centurion. Romans, come on, they're pagans. They're disgusting. They're the scum of the earth as well. We're supposed to be getting rid of them. And you're sitting here saying, hey, you Roman centurion who's conquered the land of Israel and oppressed these people, you have better faith than all the people of Israel. And then after that, 
he tells this deeply offensive, dangerous story called the Good Samaritan. Now, we think that story is cute. That story is not cute, guys. That story is offensive. Jesus is telling the people of Israel, there is a Samaritan and he was good. And the religious elites are like, no, Samaritans are all blah. And a Levite walks by the man who's beaten on the road. And a priest walks by him. And then this Samaritan, this pagan, this sinner shows up and he's good. Deeply offensive story. And after he tells these stories, we have almost two chapters of Jesus going toe-to-toe with the Pharisees. And he opposes the religious establishment of his day. And he openly denounces their religious practices. They are not a part of the new kingdom he is establishing, only sinners. And then in chapter 14, he tells the story about a wedding invitation. Oh, ha, 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 the wedding invitation. Ah, now it makes sense. He tells a story about a, about a wedding invitation where the invitation goes out. The wedding is here. The invitation goes out to all the people who had been previously invited, and n- they all make excuses. And so what does the story say? This is in, 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 in verse 21 of chapter 14. When all the people who had been previously invited make up excuses and deny the invitation, notice what it says in verse 21. The master of the ceremony says, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bringing the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. This is Luke chapter 4 all over again. This is his sermon in the synagogue all over again. It wasn't that he was excluding the religious because he didn't love them. They excluded themselves. And he's establishing this new kingdom and he's proclaiming to them over and over again, it's not for you. And this just happens over and over again in the book of Luke. Until we get to chapter 15 where the parable of the lost son is found. And if you really want to understand this parable, you have to understand this context. Jesus is liberating captives. He's creating a new Israel through them, and the elites are not included. So now that we're in chapter 15, the parable of the lost son starts in verse 11, but I can't go there yet. We've got a little bit more work to do. You've got to go to verse 1 of chapter 15. Turn back to chapter 15 and look at verse 1. How does verse 1 of chapter 15 begin? Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. Come on, guys. It's the same theme. It's just repeating over and over and over. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. I promised that I would talk a little bit more about this tax collector thing. Now, I've explained it in previous sermons before because it's a constant theme that comes up in Jesus' life, but I want to explain it from a slightly different perspective. I watched a documentary a couple weeks ago on Netflix titled New York versus the Mafia. Now, I'm from New Jersey, so anything about the Mafia usually catches my attention. New York versus the Mafia, and I watched it. It was a documentary series. Um, 
And it was extremely interesting because one of the things I learned from this documentary series that I didn't know before is that there's this myth that floats around that the mafia built its power and its wealth by sticking it to the man, by exploiting the government, by going underground into the uh, illegal businesses and bootlegging and all these types of things, and that's how they built their wealth and power. And this is true. They did do a lot of that. But what I hadn't realized was that one of the ways in which they really built their power, especially early on, was by exploiting their own community. And so one of the guys in the documentary who's interviewed, he was the mayor of New York, Rudy Giuliani, tells a story of his grandfather when he first came from Italy to New York, poor migrant Italian community, and he started a barber shop to provide for his family. And the moment he made just a little bit of profit, the mafia showed up. Give us 30% or we'll burn your business down. And they did this to all of the people in their own community. They exploited their own neighbors. They exploited their own migrant poor community in order to line their own pockets. This is what a tax collector was in Jesus' day. They worked for the Romans, the occupying force. They were traitors to their own people. They exploited the poverty of their neighbor. They profited off of their suffering to line their own pockets. No one liked a tax collector. They were the scum of the earth. And yet here we read, here we read, Luke chapter 15, verse 1, that tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. They loved being around him because Jesus came for them. But I want you to capture the true scandal of the book of Luke now. Because everybody knows that God loves sinners. And everybody knows that Jesus came for sinners. The true scandal of the book of Luke is not merely that God loves sinners. Its true scandal is that God loves them, yes, but also that he is creating a new kingdom and he's doing it through them. That's the scandal of Luke. That's the offensiveness of the narrative of Christ's life, that he's building this whole new kingdom and he's not doing it through the religious elites. He's not doing it through the teachers of the law. He's not doing it through the experts of the Old Testament. No, he's doing it through the tax collectors and the sinners and the prostitutes and the people and the highways and the byways, the ones who never show up at church. He's building it through them. Mm. That's uncomfortable. Now I want to pause for a few moments to make a few painful but necessary statements. The first is this. You have to get really suspicious when your church has way too many saints and hardly any sinners. Because it doesn't match the way Jesus operated. And so if your church has way too many saints and hardly any sinners, it's likely it's not following in the footsteps of Jesus. Something's off. You got to get suspicious when sinners don't fit in, when they don't like your church. In fact, let me make this a little bit more personal. You got to get suspicious when they don't like you. 
You can be sure you're out of step with God's rhythm when sinners don't like to be around you. And I'm using the term sinners broadly right now because it's, we're all sinners, right? I'm using it broadly in terms of the stories using it. Do sinners love to come to this church? Let me keep it personal. How many of them love to be around you? See, statistically speaking, the longer you're an Adventist, the less non-Adventist friends you have. And all of a sudden, everyone in your circle of influence, they all start to look like you, and they all start to dress like you, and they all start to think like you, and they all start to live like you, until there's no one around you who isn't identical to you. And the longer we are in church, the worse it gets. And the tragedy is this. The tragedy is that for many of us, we're not attractive to the lost. We're only attractive to the saints who already agree with us. And the only people who enjoy our presence are the people who already think like us and live like us. And I've become convinced as I study the life of Jesus, that whatever being like Jesus is, it involves being the kind of person that sinners love to be around. Because Jesus came for sinners, not just because he loves them, but because it's through them that he will build his kingdom. Hmm. Jesus is building his kingdom. Not through the religious elite, but through the broken and contrite heart of the sinner who knows he needs a savior. Second point is this. If Jesus came for sinners, if Jesus came for sinners, mm, 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 I don't even want to say this one, guys. You know what? So long as you don't throw me off a cliff, we're okay. If Jesus came for sinners, why do we try and act all perfect when we come to church? Now, listen to me. I believe Jesus is transforming us. He doesn't leave us as he found us. I'm all for sanctification. Believe you me, I'm not one of these, forget that stuff. No, 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 I'm, I'm all, it's coming. It's coming in two or three sermons, so don't worry about that. I believe that. But being transformed by grace and pretending you're all holy and afraid to take off the mask and admit your faults are not the same thing. We create a culture in our church. We create a culture in our church where there is this holiness script. And everyone has to match the script. And if you don't match the script, you're out. And if you match the script, you're in. But listen to me, here's the problem. Nobody matches the script. And so the people on the inside are simply those who get really good at pretending to match the script. And the people on the outside are the ones who don't even try and match it. So those who have learned how to wear the mask real nice, and they wear the right clothes, and they say the right words, and they read the right books, and they have the right opinions... And then judge the people who aren't like them and stare at the mom with the really loud kids in front of the young couple they think shouldn't be dating and are pushy with people who they think aren't keeping the rules well enough. They're the ones who fit in. 
And their home might be in a mess, and their marriage might be falling apart. And listen to me, their browser history might be riddled with pornography, and their hearts might be selfish and arrogant and divisive. But hey, they match the script. They can quote Ellen White really well, and they can debate theology, and they wear their tie just right, so they fit the script. I'm talking about myself right now. But Jesus didn't come for people like that. He came for the sick. He came for the sinner. He came for the person, like the parable of the Pharisee and the publican who beats his chest and says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. I learned a long time ago that there's nothing more freeing than just admitting, wow, I'm messed up. I need a savior. So if you're sitting here this morning and you're feeling all unworthy, I want you to know I'm with you because I'm sick too. But there is a savior who loves to sit with sinners and he's building a new kingdom and he's doing it through us. Whoo! But the Pharisees, I'm getting close to finishing here. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they weren't down with this. Uh-uh. They were not down with this at all. So look at verse 2. Jesus sitting down, tax collectors, sinners, they love gathering around him. They're sitting around, they want to listen to Jesus. And look at verse 2. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they murmur amongst themselves, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. See, the same thing that happened at Levi's party in chapter 5 is now happening in chapter 15. The same theme repeats. Jesus' project of recreating Israel through the nobodies of the world is gaining steam. It's becoming a threat to the religious establishment. Jesus wasn't murdered because he told nice stories, church. He was murdered because he threatened everything the religious class had constructed. He threatened their stability. He threatened their traditions. He threatened their customs. He threatened everything they thought was important. So they murdered him. But they don't murder him yet. The murder begins with a murmur. He eats with sinners and tax collectors. Now, before we dismiss the Pharisees as just a bunch of narcissists, let's try and understand them a little bit. See, if you understand the history of Israel in the Old Testament, you find that the people of Israel, for a long time, assimilated to the pagan cultures around them. To the point that Israel became worse than the people God had driven out when they first got into Canaan. The book of Kings tells us that the streets of Jerusalem were flowing with the blood of the innocent. Their judicial system was entirely corrupt. Their business ethics were completely exploitative. This nation that God had established to reflect his heart had become like everybody else. And so God judged them. He sent the Babylonians. The Babylonians dispersed them, took them into exile into Babylon. And God said, in 70 years, I'm going to let you go back and rebuild the city. So 70 years pass. The captivity ends. They go back to Jerusalem and rebuild. But something happened when they returned. You see this in the book of Nehemiah and Ezra, if you read it carefully. What you find is that in an effort to never again disobey God, they became obsessed with the law. 
So the pendulum swung real far in the opposite direction. So by the time Jesus comes along, they're so concerned about making sure they never go astray again that they become fanatical about the rules and they shun anyone who they perceive as unholy and they detach themselves from Gentiles and pagans and they judge and disown and reject anyone who doesn't fit their holiness script. Because they want to make sure that they never mess it up again. And having grown up in that religion, having grown up with that mentality, the Pharisees simply cannot fathom how a holy God or a man claiming to be the Son of God would come into this earth and construct a new Israel without them. And instead, he's using sinners. It doesn't make any sense. So they're muttering amongst themselves, how could a holy God associate with such unholiness? And we often do the same today. In our attempts to not be like the world, we go to the opposite extreme. We obsess over rules to the point that we become repulsive to sinners instead of attractive. But Jesus didn't come for the religious experts. He came for those who know they need a savior. And so Jesus is sitting in this room. Mm, he's sitting in this room and he's surrounded by these sinners and then in come the religious folk and, and just to help your imagination, on the one side you got all the sinners, on the other side you got all the religious folk, and, and they're surrounding Jesus. And here's the beauty of Jesus. This, man, Jesus is so cool. Here's the beauty of Jesus. He begins to tell three stories. He tells this parable of the lost coin, he tells the parable of the lost sheep, and he tells the parable of the lost son. Here's the beauty of Jesus. In these parables, Jesus reveals the gospel, not only for the audience that is lost, for the tax collectors and the sinners, but for those who think they are found. In other words, as Jesus begins to explain the gospel in these parables, what he communicates is that the gospel is not only for new believers or for the drunkard in the bar. The gospel is for pastors and elders and church boards and Sabbath school teachers just the same. All right, I'm getting ready to close now. You guys are like, man, you haven't even started the parable yet. Like, how long is the sermon? Don't worry, we're going to get to the parable next time. Today is just the context. I'm going to close with this. All three parables that Jesus tells. I'm not going to focus on all three of them. I'm only going to focus on the lost son. But all three parables follow a similar pattern. There is a relationship at the beginning. And then the object of the relationship ends up lost. A search takes place. And then the lost object is found. And there's a celebration. In all three stories, the thing that is lost is deeply desired by the one who lost it. The man desires the sheep, so he risks everything to find it. Notice he leaves the 99 to find the one. The same theme. 
The woman loses her coin. She sweeps the whole house until she finds it. The, fire, the father, fa pardon, desires the son, so he longs for his return. And I guess this is my point, that when it comes to experiencing the gospel, this is where we have to start. I'm, 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 I'm a theology nerd, and, you know, I end up in all these interesting discussions over theological hair splitting and all that stuff. And, 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 and when it comes to the gospel, people end up, you know, oh, you, know, you have to start here and justification, sanctification, and you connect them like it just gets all mumbled and boring and ridiculous. And here's my point. If you want to understand the gospel, you first, 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 not second, not third, first, have to understand the way God feels about you. Forget about justification, sanctification, all that big stuff. No, no, no. First, understand how God feels about you. The book Steps to Christ, a primer on the gospel. It doesn't start with chapter 2, the sinner's need of Christ. It starts with chapter 1, God's love for man. You have to begin with how God feels about you. And so we begin here, church. That you, sinner, you with your hidden sins, with your shameful secrets, with your messed up life and your insecurities and doubts, you, yes, you, God wants you. Oh, you guys didn't hear me. God wants you. So drop the act. Let go of the fakery. Put away the pretension. You don't have to fit a script for anybody. God wants you, messed up you, broken you, contrite you, just the way you are. Because the context of Luke is that he takes sinful, messed up people just like that. And he metamorphs them into agents of healing and love through whom he transforms the world. So no matter how messed up you are here this morning. I came here to tell you that God has, has ordained that through you, he's going to build his kingdom. Woo! Not the religious elite. Mm -mm. He's bypassing them. But the nobodies and the sinners who know I need a savior. Before you can have a real religion, before you can have a real faith, before you can have a real Christianity, you got to get this thing deep into your soul. God wants you. I'm going to close now. The theme in Luke confronts us in a lot of beautiful ways. I'm just going to point out three and then we're done. The first is this. You belong no matter where you've been. You belong not only as the recipient of God's love, but as the means through which he is establishing his kingdom, his new Israel, his church. Now maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, man, yeah, but uh, I'm pretty messed up. I don't feel like I belong. I don't fit the script. Allow me to repeat it once more. That's exactly what God's looking for. It's through you that he will build his kingdom. And if you give him a chance, if you give him a chance, Jesus said it all the way back in chapter 4 of Luke. If you give him a chance, why did he come? He came to set people free. He, 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 he will break your chains, restore your sight, set you free to a whole new life, whole new experience. Oh, man, the things that God has in store for broken people. 
The second is this. The beauty of Luke's gospel is also its offensiveness. And this one's more for me because the kingdom is not for the religious elite, but for the sinner. So it invites people like me, church veterans, leaders, theologians, to repent of our pride, recognize our brokenness, and renounce our pretensions and our scripts and our masks. Because this kingdom isn't for the elites. It's for the broken. Jesus said it. I didn't come for the healthy. I came for the sick. I've discovered that the way into his kingdom is to put aside my impressive religious resume. Like Paul say, I consider it all garbage. And say, God, here I am. I'm sick too. Heal me. And the third is this. I'm going to close with this. Do you want to understand the gospel? Do you want to experience it? Forget about all the complicated debates. If you want to taste the gospel, you begin right here. At your absolute worst, God desires you. He wants you. He likes you. He loves you. And he's calling you right now, come be a part of my new kingdom. But God, I'm still, uh-uh. I haven't, I, I don't understand. I, I know. Just come. Father in heaven. Wow. What a wonderful Savior. two kinds of people in the room this morning, Lord. Those who feel like they don't belong. My prayer right now for them is that they would accept your invitation to be part of your new kingdom. Because you came for them. Forgive us church folk who nurture and perpetuate environments that make such people feel uncomfortable because that's not Jesus but besides that and, 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 and despite that Lord my prayer this morning is that you would help them see and feel right now and experience your overwhelming passion for them that you love them but it's not merely that you love them but that you have this crazy, radical, wild plan that if they would just give you a chance, you will build a new kingdom through them. And all the transformation and the healing and the beauty that it comes with that. And so my first prayer, Father, is for those who are here who know they are sinners, who know they are broken, who know they need a savior. May they leave this place today knowing you want them. They may not look like me, think like me, or dress like me, but you want them. Father, my second prayer is for the church veterans among us because the gospel isn't just for those are wandering the highways and the byways of life. The gospel 
is in many ways just as radical for those of us already in the church. Those of us who've gotten used to wearing the mask really well. Those of us who've gotten used to playing along with the script really well. Lord, my prayer is that you would humble us. That you would open our hearts and minds to recognize that we are just as sick and that we too need a Savior. And may that recognition and that awakening, Lord, only your Holy Spirit can do that. That's, that's beyond anything I can say, Father. Only your Holy Spirit can enact that metamorphosis in our lives. And so in light of that experience that we ask of you this morning, Lord, may it transform us into the kinds of people that sinners love to be around. Father, as I close this prayer, I just want to thank you. I just want to praise you. I want to praise you because I know how messed up I am. And yet you still want me. May each and every one of us taste that reality. Today is my prayer. In Jesus' name. Amen.